Welcome to Forgotten True Crime, where we uncover the forgotten stories of our past. In this episode, we'll delve into the tragic case of a small-town murder that occurred on September 16, 1921, in Duncan, Oklahoma. A young boy, Ben Coleman, fell victim to a cold-blooded killer who brutally took his life while robbing him and his companions on their way home from the fair. The killer was not caught that night, and the case has been lost to history. But we at Forgotten True Crime are dedicated to unearthing the truth and bringing back this case to the public attention. Join us as we delve into the investigation of the murder of Ben Coleman, examine the events of that fateful night, and search for answers to the many questions that still surround this case. This episode contains descriptions of violence and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The cool September air in the small town of Duncan, Oklahoma was filled with a palpable sense of fear as 14-year-old Ben Coleman and his two companions, Elbert Ryan and Joe Hansen, made their way home from the fairgrounds. As they walked down the dimly lit streets of North Ninth, a figure emerged from the shadows. Dressed in a menacing ensemble of a light silk shirt, striped pants, and a heavy, stiff straw hat, the stranger seemed to be trailing the boys. But they paid little attention, chalking up to just eerie coincidence. But as they turned onto Ash Avenue and came across three African-American boys, also heading towards the fairgrounds, their carefree stroll turned into a nightmare. Without warning, the stranger appeared between the two groups, pulling a gun and demanding they halt and throw up their hands. The man, who the boys later described as a young man in his mid-twenties, claimed to be searching for a craps game, but as he searched the group, he didn't take their money. He only took the life of Ben Coleman. As the boys stood frozen in shock, the stranger shot Coleman in the back as the boys stepped forward to one side. I'm going to get you, the hijacker said and pulled the trigger. The bullet pierced Coleman's back, exiting under the rib near the belt line. As Ben laid dying on the ground, his friends helplessly watched as the hijacker continued his search of the three black men. And after finishing them said, well, now you take care of that kid. He's not the first one I've got. I'm going. And walked away from the scene, disappearing into the darkness of the night. The boys, horrified by the senseless violence that had just occurred, knew that they had to act quickly. They picked up their dying friend and carried him to a nearby residence where they called an ambulance and Ben was rushed to the Whedon Hospital, where he died hours later. This was a brutal crime that shook the small town of Duncan to its core. A 14-year-old boy on his way home from a fun night at the fair was just brutally murdered in cold blood by a stranger who seemed to be looking for something more sinister than a craps game. The senseless act of violence was felt throughout the community as people struggled to come with 
come to terms with the loss of a young life and the terrifying realization that a killer was on the loose. The murder was not just a random stranger. The murderer was not just a random stranger. He was a cold-blooded killer who did not hesitate to take the life for petty gain. A person the town could no longer ignore. But this was no ordinary 14-year-old boy. Ben Coleman, the victim, was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Clyde Coleman, a well-known and respected family in town, in the town of Duncan. The news of his murder since... The news of his murder sent shockwaves through the community as people struggled to understand how something so senseless and cruel could happen in their small, peaceful town. The authorities reacted swiftly to the crime, utilizing all available resources to track down the killer. The police, the sheriffs, and special officers worked tirelessly through the night following leads and gathering information in effort to locate the murderer. The telephone and telegraph wires were utilized here, and officers in towns and cities in the southwest part of the state were notified of the killing and were given a description of the suspect. As the night deepened and the hunt for the hijacker intensified, the constable, R.C. Young, was on high alert. He patrolled the dimly lit streets of Duncan, Oklahoma, his gun at the ready. He was determined to bring the killer to justice. Before the arrival of the 1 a.m. northbound train at the depot, he spotted what he thought was the suspect attempting to flee on the train. Without hesitation, Constable Young fired a couple of shots at the suspect, the echoing gunfire ringing through the empty train yard. The suspect, realizing he had been spotted, turned and fired back at Constable Young. The constable fired again. The muzzle flash illuminated the darkness. But as the smoke cleared, the suspect had vanished. His partner, Rock Island detective Mr. Marlowe, was on the other side of the tracks, and he did not see the suspect. The two officers frantically searched the train yard, looking for any sign of the killer. It had soon become clear that the suspect had ducked between two strings of cars and was running in a crouching position, making his way to a pile of pipes where he was hiding. They searched the area, but the suspect was nowhere to be found. At this point, the train, which the suspect was trying to get on board, had started to pull out. Constable Young shouted to the train's engineer to stop the train or to just shoot the suspect, but the engineer only slowed down the train and, but didn't stop it. The suspect was able to get onto the other side of the train and disappeared into the night, leaving Constable Young and the rest of the Duncan police force determined to catch him. Now, this was pretty unfortunate. The train pulling out of the station at this time and going through slowly was actually the reason the suspect was able to get away 
at this time. It split the officers from him and they had to wait for the train to clear the tracks so they could get on the other side. As the word spread of the tragedy, thousands of Oklahomans joined in the search for the killer. Through the night, volunteers fanned out across the town and surrounding areas, scouring the streets and railroad yards for any sign of the man the boys had described. The police, sheriffs, and special officers were working tirelessly to find this killer and several suspects were taken into custody in connection with the murder of Ben Coleman. Among them were Virgil Winnegar, John Wilkerson, and Society Slim Westmoreland, who were known to many in the community and had been in the area for some time. However, the evidence connecting them to this crime was not considered conclusive, and they were eventually all released due to the lack of evidence. Despite being cleared of this suspicion, these men were likely left with the shadow of the crime hanging over them, and their reputations at this time may have been tarnished by their association with the case. As the search for the killer continued, the police focused their attention on four black men who had been present at the scene of the crime. These men were not considered suspects, but they were being held as witnesses. They believed to have information that could identify the killer, and some of them had seen the suspect before. African Americans were often subject to discrimination and racism, and their rights were not always protected. These four men were being held in jail. Although they were not considered suspects, they were not free to go either. It was believed that one or all of them could identify the man who killed Ben Coleman, and they were just being held as a precaution until that killer was caught. Despite the challenges they faced, the police, sheriffs, and special officers were determined to bring the killer to justice. They were following leads and gathering information, and as the days went by, it seemed more and more likely they would be able to solve this case. In the words of Sheriff Ryan, we have never failed to get a man we were after. It was reasonably sure that before another week passed, the murderer would be behind bars. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc on september 21st 1921 ec mason a suspect in the murder of 14 year old ben coleman was arrested and brought to the city jail in oklahoma city for safekeeping 
Now, he was captured in a small town near the Texas border, just 30 minutes south of Duncan, Oklahoma. The officers believe that Mason was the real murderer and had evidence to back up their suspicion. The news of his arrest spread quickly, and there were concerns that a mob may form to seek justice for the young boy's murder. So, as a precaution, Mason was taken out of Duncan and moved to different jails in the surrounding area to prevent any potential violence. When Mason was brought to Oklahoma City, the officers put him under intense scrutiny, trying to extract the confession from him. However, Mason remained tight-lipped and didn't give them the answers they were looking for. He was given a third degree by the officers, but he did not break. The evidence against Mason was mounting. A striped shirt that was found in his cell matched the description given by the witnesses of the murder. Additionally, there were tracks found near the scene of the murder made by a shoe that had a patch on the sole. And Mason had a patch on his shoe. Furthermore, the other group who had been held up by the same man who killed Ben Coleman the day before identified Mason as the killer. The identification was made quickly and without hesitation. The man stated he would know that man's ashes. And this helped solidify the evidence against Mason. Actually, one of the key pieces of the testimony came from one of the African-American witnesses who had been held up by the hijacker on the night before the murder. He testified that the man who held him up was the same man who killed Ben Coleman the following night. He was positive that the man he identified was Roy C. Mason, and his identification of Mason came quick and certain. But the testimony that, that would prove to be the most shocking came from the other witnesses who were also being held as a prisoner in, in the jail. He had testified that Mason approached him while he was washing windows and asked if he thought the two boys were going to testify against him. The witness alleged that Mason then made a threat saying that it would be considered a personal matter if the witnesses testified against him at the hearing. This testimony sent shockwaves through the courtroom as it painted Mason as a man who was not only capable of cold-blooded murder, but also someone willing to threaten and intimidate witnesses. You all can imagine the atmosphere in the courtroom with the tension mounting as these revelations were made and that the revelation that the man on trial may be even more dangerous than they had first thought. Mason's capture was a significant development in the investigation, and the officers were more confident that they had the right man. The evidence against him was strong. It seemed that justice was within reach for the family and the community of Ben Coleman. In the courtroom, tensions were high as the preliminary hearing of Roy C. Mason, the suspect in the murder of 14-year-old Ben Coleman, began. Mason dressed in a cheap blue shirt and dark trousers. He sat at a long table, nonchalantly toying with a fountain pen and thumbing through law books. 
Despite the gravity of the situation, he displayed a cold, almost indifferent demeanor, casually glancing around the room and even occasionally flashing a smile. As the hearing progressed, Mason's defense attorney, MacArthur, stood before the judge and requested a delay in the proceedings, citing a lack of time to properly prepare for a cross-examination of the state's witnesses. The judge granted a continuance until the following Friday, and Mason was let out of the courtroom, still displaying that cool demeanor. That cool and detached demeanor. The court was also in a state of uncertainty about Mason's true identity. It was revealed that the name Mason was assumed, and he had no intention of revealing his real name. The only lead that the authorities had of his identity was his army record, as he had claimed he had served four years in the army, eight months of which were in the medical department as an intelligence officer. The hope was that through these army records, they would be able to uncover his fingerprints and match them to the suspect. But keep in mind, there's a lot of people that serve in the army, so this was not going to be an easy thing to do. As the hearing was adjourned, it was clear that this case was far from solved as the true identity of the suspect remained a mystery and the hunt for evidence continued. It took weeks for detectives to find out who Mason really was. It was through real police work and determination to go through thousands of army records, but they made a development in the case. In the investigation of the murder of 14-year-old Ben Coleman, new information came to light revealing the true identity of the suspect being held in custody. After weeks investigating and following leads, the officers on the case were able to piece together that the man they had in custody, who had been going by the alias of E.C. Mason, was actually a man named E.C. McNutt. They delved deeper into McNutt's past and discovered that he was a member of a notorious gang of hijackers and car thieves operating through the state of Texas. Deputy Sheriff Jim Brown was able to produce evidence showing that McNutt had served time in the Army under the name McNutt. And soon after, Deputy Sheriff McCoy of Austin, Texas arrived to help identify McNutt in person. When asked about McNutt, Sheriff McCoy said he is a bad man and a hijacker. I'm confident that he was the party that held up the crowd, which this boy was at the time he met his death. I do not think, however, that the hijacker intended to kill the boy. The officers on the case were now convinced that they had the real murderer in their custody and that McNutt's true identity only served to further solidify the evidence against him. As the investigation continued, the officers described McNutt as a mean guy who appeared unfazed by the murder charges against him. But the officers were determined to see justice served, and with this new information, they were one step closer to bring closure to the family of young Ben Coleman. 
With this new evidence in mind, on Monday, December 12, 1921, Eugene McNutt was formally arraigned in the district court on the charge of murder. As the trial of Eugene McNutt, also known as Earl C. Mason, began on December 12th, the courtroom was filled with anticipation. McNutt, charged with the murder of 14-year-old Ben Coleman, was accompanied by his mother and uncle as he stood before Judge Cham Jones. McNutt's defense team, Scott and MacArthur and W.C. Lewis, had been appointed by the court, while the prosecution was led by County Attorney Paul Sullivan, and assisted by R.H. Brown and E.H. Bond. The day was spent selecting a jury, as the attorneys carefully examined each prospective juror to ensure they had not formed an opinion on the case from newspaper or verbal reports. However, as the state began to present evidence on December 13th, it was clear they had a pretty strong case against McNutt. The first witness was Cap Porter, the undertaker who testified about the condition of the boy's body. The next witness was Elbert Ryan, who was a 16-year-old boy who was part of the group of men and boys held up by the hijacker on the night of the murder. He identified McNutt as the man who held them up and fired the shot that killed Coleman. Mr. Sims, another witness also identified McNutt as a man he had talked to at the carnival grounds on the day of the killing and as the hijacker who held up the group. As the state continued to call witnesses, each one provided details and graphic accounts of the night of the murder, painting a pretty clear picture of McNutt as the culprit. Despite the defense attempting to mix up the testimony, the state's case against McNutt seemed to be solidifying with each passing witness. As the trial continued, it was clear that the outcome of this case would have a significant impact on the community, and the fate of McNutt hung in the balance. As the trial of Eugene McNutt charged with the murder of Ben Coleman reached its climax, McNutt took the stand in his own defense. He tells a well-connected story of his movements leading up to the night of the murder and provided a clear account on his actions while in Duncan and his subsequent arrest nearby. McNutt speaks in a low voice but manages to keep his story clear and free of contradictions. He explained that he gave an he explained that he gave an assumed name to protect his mother from worrying about him, but also admits that he's been convicted of stealing automobile tires and rims in Texas. Although he received a suspended sentence, he also denied ever being convicted in Austin, and he said he never stole a Ford car. But McNutt says that he arrived in Duncan between 5 and 6 o'clock on the evening of the tragedy, and he tried to find work that day and stayed in Duncan until around 9 o'clock the next morning when he caught a train south and was later arrested nearby. He explains that he had on two shirts when he was arrested and left one of them in jail. 
He also explained that a drug addict got away with his shoes while they were prisoners together at the Oklahoma City Jail. The prosecution introduced evidence to show that tracks found near the scene of the killing were such as might have been made by the narrow pointed shoes that McNutt wore at the time of his arrest. McNutt denies that he traded shoes off, but that the drug addict but the drug addict simply just got away with them without his consent. The defense also introduced evidence to show discrepancies in the testimony that was given earlier in the trial. One witness stated that at least two of the men stated the morning following the shooting that the hijacker was a large man as tall as Judge Burroughs and heavier. Judge Burroughs is about six feet and one inches tall and about 175 pounds. Evidence also introduced by the defense showed that one of the men admitted McNutt did not look like the man who did the shooting. After this testimony, the case was handed over to the jury. It was clear that the prosecution had made out a strong case case against him, but the defense had relied on attacking the credibility of that testimony to see if that made any difference. The mother of the victim, Miss Coleman, sat in the front row of the courtroom, tears just streaming down her face as the verdict was read. Guilty. The family of the young boy who lost his life at the hands of McNutt finally had a sense of justice for their loss. Judge Jones asked McNutt, is there any reason why sentence should not be passed? And McNutt responded, the only reason I know is that I'm not guilty. Judge Jones sentenced McNutt to 99 years in prison. McNutt, who had maintained his innocence throughout this trial, was let out of the courtroom in handcuffs, his fate sealed for the next 20 years with good behavior. The prosecution, led by court attorney Paul Sullivan, had presented a strong case against McNutt, and the jury ultimately found him responsible for the senseless murder of Ben Coleman. The community of Duncan could finally breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that the man responsible for such a heinous crime was being held accountable for his actions. The trial had captured the attention of the entire city with packed courtrooms throughout the proceedings. The citizens of Duncan could finally close this dark chapter in their history and move on with the knowledge of that justice had been served. McNutt would spend some years in prison. He appealed the decision that was given and it was actually taken up by a higher court. But with a group of other prisoners, McNutt escaped from prison. Unfortunately for him, this is when they were actually reviewing his appeal and they denied it based on the escape. McNutt would spend a couple of years out of prison on the run, but ultimately he was recaptured. McNutt died May 1st of 1959 and was buried in the Alexandria National Cemetery. Thank you all for joining me and allowing me to tell this forgotten true crime story. If you would like to know more, please go over to truecrime.blog where this story is posted with a lot of the really cool stuff that we found 
for the story as well. Lots of news articles and some cool information on that appeal. Also join us on our Facebook page over at facebook.com forward slash forgotten true crime. I'll see you all next time. See ya.